Today on the Burning Archive, part two of the series telling the story of Russian history backwards, and today it is the 20th century. If we let go of the black legend of Russian history, we see instead an astonishing drama with the entire range of human emotions. Nowhere is this clearer than the astonishing 20th century, sometimes called the American century, that runs from the last Romanovs to Vladimir Putin. And if we approach that history with empathy and not see it through the eyes of the black legend, we see a grand drama, tragic, comic, farcical, all at once, of five revolutions and four great wars. What happened in the 20th century in the Russian world? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. So I have set myself quite a task today on the Burning Archive, which is to cover the 20th century in Russian history. And I guess this is continuing on the series that sort of began with the commemorative episodes about Mikhail Gorbachev which together, I guess, describe the last 30 or 40 years of Russian history. And in this episode, I want to go take the story all the way back to 1900 and take it all the way forward to uh, Vladimir Putin's ascension to power in 1999. And that's ambitious because some of the most uh, remarkable events, I guess, in, uh, in human history in the 20th century at least, really occurred in and around Russia, the Russian Revolution, uh, most of World War II, known in Russia as the Great Fatherland War, uh, most of World War I, <laughs> uh, Stalinism, authoritarianism, Gorbachev, uh, and of course the Cold War. So there's an awful lot of material to cover. And that's big military political events, but there's also the astonishing range of cultural uh, developments that occurred in the 20th century, many of which were based in Russia. The music starting the show, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, comes of course from a Russian uh, composer around about 1912, I think, and evokes the world of Russian paganism as part of a revolt against civilized Europe. And then there's major developments in linguistics and literary criticism and history and so much else that is related to Soviet culture, as well as, I guess, the iconography of uh, the Soviet world. The, the both the early ultra modernism, but then the later sort of socialist realism that uh, you know is still retailed uh, around the world, and of course the emotional uh, legacy of so much death, tragedy, and horror as well. So what I'm going to do then is try to just do a quick overview of this um, this extraordinary story of Russia in the 20th century. And when I say Russia, I guess I mean the Russian world, the Russian mere, not just 
purely the Russian Federation, but all the states that were part of the Soviet Union and that were part, I guess, of the preceding Russian Empire and are still part of the uh, Russian-influenced world. Uh, So I'm going to give a quick overview and maybe just provide a few access points to open people's minds to the fascinating extraordinary set of stories that exist if we look beyond the closed mind of the black legend of russian history and open our minds to the riches that are actually there and so there's sort of nine or if you like maybe ten ten um uh, periods which i'm going to quickly cover i'll try to be brief around each one of them that will give you, the listener of the Burning Archive, a bit of an overview of Russian history in the 20th century, its patterns and its dramas and its key events, as well as a few access points if you are curious and want to follow up more. And then those 10 uh, sort of events structured around the idea of five revolutions and four great wars are... uh, Revolution 1 is the 1905 revolution, which introduces both constitutional changes as well as uh, is associated with what's called the Russian Silver Age and so much of the cultural revolution of the early 20th century. Then there's World War 1, 1914 to 1918. Then there's the February 1917 revolution followed in October 1917 by the Third Revolution, the Bolshevik October Revolution. And then that is followed by the Second Great War of Russia's history in the 20th century, the Russian Civil War, which uh, continues for uh, about five years and leads to something like five to eight million dead. Revolution 4 is Stalin's economic revolution of industrialization and collectivization and also uh, a cultural revolution of sorts in the late 1920s to 1930s. Uh, then there is the third great war, the great fatherland war as it's known in Russia, sometimes translated as the Great Patriotic War, uh, or World War II, as it's commonly known in the West. Then the Long Cold War from, well, 1945, 1948, depending on how you want to uh, begin it, up to 1989. Uh, And that, I guess, includes an interlude of remarkable Soviet prosperity and stability in the Soviet Union in the 50s, 60s and 70s, in which people came to believe that Soviet society was, in a way, working. And then the fifth and final revolution, the 1990s, the market, liberal market, neoliberal market revolution of the 1990s. So that's the plan for the program uh, and I will get straight into it and talk about each of those segments quite quickly I think 
in turn because I kind of want to keep this contained to like a single hour program. So let us begin then with the first phase of the story between 1900 and 1914 and this features the 1905 Russian Revolution. If you were to consult your standard mass media images of Russia in this time, you would see pictures of the last Romanovs living out a fantasy of autocracy with uh, astonishing wealth, Fabergé eggs uh, and a kind of moral corruption overseeing a uh, suffering peasantry only recently released from serfdom and with revolt in the air. And those things are kind of true, but there's also uh, another layer of reality there, and that is this is known as Russia's Silver Age, a kind of a golden age of... Uh, literary and cultural and uh, intellectual dynamism uh, that is quite extraordinary and extraordinarily diverse in terms of its, uh, I guess, ethnic composition, not just purely Russians, but all kinds of uh, Russians, the growth of Eurasian uh, identities, uh, a celebration not just of Orthodox Christianity, but of paganism, uh, atheism, and uh, other religions, revivals of Islam in some of the Russian republics. It's also a period of extraordinary literary, uh, musical, uh, and artistic innovation, Kandinsky, Chagall, Malevich, and authors like Andre Belli, whose novel Petersburg is an astonishing experimental work that looks at the wonder that was this huge, large, commercial, modern, capitalist city that seemed to house uh, a kind of unreal world of electricity and art and new ideas. But in this ferment of culture, there was also a political revolution which occurred in 1905 when the Tsar lost authority, I guess, uh, following a defeat or uh, a stalemate at least in the Russian-Japan War and was forced to concede constitutional reforms which enabled some level of, I guess, parliamentary democracy in a way within uh, Russia and was uh, has long been celebrated by American liberals as, yeah, I guess, the lost promise of a Russian liberal democracy or conservative liberal democracy with a particular uh, Prime Minister of Russia, Piotr uh, Stolipin, who uh, sadly was also assassinated in Kiev in, I think, 1912. Uh, so many 
differing things already in this era, in this very first phase of Russian history. So I think if you want to change your perspective of Russian history, don't just look at documentaries about the Romanovs, but look at and listen to some of the music and the literature and the culture, the art that was produced in that extraordinary period of the Russian Silver Age. Okay, so let's move on to phase two. In phase two, it's the first great war of Russia's 20th century. Uh, And when I say Russia, I'm saying Russia here in terms of the Russian world. So just to clarify that. Uh, So 1914 to 1918. uh, And I guess usually we tell this story as a story between uh, England, Germany and France, really, uh, with Russia coming in at the end because there's a revolution in in uh, St. Petersburg that affects the course of the war. But as the historian Dominique Levin uh, makes clear in his remarkable book Towards the Flame, World War I is as much as anything a war about the fate of Russia um, and the conflict between Germany and Russia as anything. We need to see World War I as in part a conflict arising between Germany's intention to detach the western borderlands of the Russian Empire like uh, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia um, in terms of their current well, then they were just, I guess, regions. Now they are countries uh, detached them from the Russian Empire and to make Germany a much stronger dominant power in Europe. And But it was also, obviously, also about the breakdown of the international system uh, of uh, great power balance in Europe. And one of those great powers, of course, was Russia. So I won't talk too much about World War I, but uh, to f- suffice it to say that it is, uh, if you want to get over the black legend of Russian history, it's really valuable to read, I guess, both Mark B. Smith's book, but also particularly Dominique Levin's book, uh, Towards the Flame, which is subtitled Empire, War and the End of Tsarist Russia uh, came out a couple of years ago, I think, in uh, around the time of the you know anniversary of the end of World War One, uh, and um, it's a re- remarkable book, uh, and it really does help change your your uh, perspective on one of those pivotal events of the twentieth century, and we do need to see that event much more as not just, you know, I guess America sweeping in at the end or or Britain's uh, battles, uh, stalemate battles in the Somme, let alone the uh, tragic loss of uh, Australian and New Zealand and Turkish and other soldiers at Gallipoli at the instigation of Winston Churchill's mad schemes. Uh, 
but it is very much a conflict which has Russia and Russia's borderlands at at its centre. So again, uh, all the drama of World War One is as much a drama about Russia, Russian, uh, the Russian world, and uh, all the the tragedies of that as it is about uh, the end of the Romanovs. Uh, but of course, World War One saps the economic vitality and saps the spirit of the. Uh, Russian nation and uh, also leads to moves towards more national identity amongst the various constituent republics of the Russian or not constituent republics, constituent regions of the uh, then Russian Empire and um, that growth in nationalism in a more modern world of course is uh, galvanized by the move towards self-determination after World War One, uh, and sets in train some of the sort of nationality conflicts that would continue uh, through the 20th century for Russia, and I guess continue to this day in uh, Ukraine. Phase three is the February Revolution of 1917 so the russian revolution famously it occurs really in uh the 1917 russian revolution really has has two major phases there's the february revolution and then there's the october revolution in the february revolution uh the the uh, czarist autocracy falls and uh, effectively a form of liberal democratic government comes to power in Russia led by what is often quite confusingly confusingly called the provisional government and of course there have been millions and millions and millions of pages uh, written on these two revolutions and in some ways the 1917 Russian Revolution uh, particularly the October Revolution helps define the nature of 20th century history because the Russian Revolution was a successful Marxist well the October Revolution was a successful Marxist revolution that was um uh, uh, you know, uh, done in the name of Marxist historical dialectical materialism, uh, viewing history as a science. So what happened in Russia in 1917 um, sort of defined the positions of historians, not just on writing the history of Russia, but on writing history as such, to some degree, for much of the 20th century, even when I was uh, studying history in the 1980s in both uh, Melbourne and Canberra, you could still, um, I guess, uh, hear the echoes of the debates over that that uh, those long ago events in. Uh, St. Petersburg in 1917. 
that's a bit of a diversion, but it's it's also fundamental to understanding how much um, uh, those events shaped uh, the the um, the divergent intellectual and cultural views of uh, millions, billions even, of ordinary people uh, as well as intellectuals throughout the 20th century. It's utterly, utterly crucial events, but also events that need to be understood not just through the lens of, well, what happened in 1989 or, or defending... Um, you know, democracy, because the February Revolution was very much undertaken in the name of democracy itself. Uh, And there was that extraordinary excitement, uh, new freedom, um, and in some ways in in the months after the February Revolution, Russia became the most democratic country in the world, Uh, new freedoms for women, new freedoms for uh, young people, uh, different attitudes towards the church, to marriage, to all sorts of uh, both social, cultural and political um, institutions. But the February Revolution did not establish a strong central Authority, uh, in some ways, the the liberal politicians who were um, in power after the February Revolution did not quite know what the hell they were doing with it, and uh, together with the social and economic instability induced by the uh, war and activated by uh, Bolshevik activists there was a deeply unstable situation and one which was ruthlessly exploited, particularly by the Bolsheviks, Lenin and uh, Stalin and Trotsky and, uh, and others, who, who uh, used the um, angry, disenchanted, uh, soldiers and sailors, the military, who wanted to get out of the war at all, uh, you know, to stop fighting a losing war and to stop being subject to uh, punishing military discipline. And the sort of uh, uh, urban centres as well, factory workers, but also intellectuals, I guess, within urban centres who were uh, attracted to uh, the appeals of revolution. In particular, uh, factories established forms of industrial democracy, sort of worker councils in, in, in uh, their factories, etc., and the, uh, where they were making decisions. It wasn't just the capitalists who were making decisions, it was also the workers who were making decisions and which they use as a platform to articulate their views to the weak centre of the liberal uh, democratic government. And uh, the Russian word for council, as in worker council, is Soviet. And as a result, 
the Bolsheviks, including Lenin, came to power in October 1917 with the slogan, All Power to the Soviets. And as a result, after the October 1917, the uh, 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 the the state that formed was the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, so that's what the term Soviet in Soviet Union means. It reflects that that fundamental uh, basis of. I guess, worker-based industrial democracy, whether it was genuine or manipulated, that uh, came to power in 1917. So, two enormous revolutions, the February Revolution and the October Revolution in 1917. And historians uh, debate intensely, particularly the October 1917 Revolution, as to whether or not it was like a coup uh, instigated by a small group of uh, political uh, extremists like Lenin with the backing of German intelligence services and German money, or whether it uh, it had broad-based popular support. And if I were to summarise, I think the consensus view there was certainly an element of a coup uh, involved, there was no doubt. It was basically a kind of a small-scale military operation uh, we, that happened in St. Petersburg in ni- October 1917, but there was also no doubt that, at least initially, the Bolshevik regime also enjoyed broad support, at least in the major urban centres of Moscow and St. Petersburg. So it's a little bit of both. And let me also add that in relationship to the 1917 revolution, I think perhaps the best book and the book that conveys what a monster Lenin was is uh, in, and is incredibly enjoyable and has has all the... Uh, the, the it's just extraordinary flavour of um, both the personalities and the context and the events and the hopes and the horror is a book by Catherine Merridale called Lennon on the Train, which is actually the account of Lennon being transported by the German government on a train up through Sweden, down through Finland, uh, into Russia in 1917. So that takes us to the end of phase four, and then we go into phase five, which is the second great war uh, of the Russia's 20th century, a great war that is often uh, neglected in I guess Western Western images of Russian history, and that is the Russian Civil War. So, one of the famous books on the February nineteen seventeen revolution is a book by an American journalist called um, uh, John Reed, called uh, entitled Ten Days That Shook the World." And uh, if 
The February Revolution was uh, 10 days that shook the world. Then the Russian Civil War was five years that devastated the Russian world. Um, and if I just read from Donald Raleigh's account of the Russian Civil War in the Cambridge History of Russia, Volume 3, the 20th Century, he says, just to summarise the bare facts, I guess, of it, the Russian Civil War caused wide-scale devastation, economic ruin, loss of life through military operations and disease, and the emigration of an estimated 1 to 2 million middle and upper class Russians. Most estimates of human losses during the ordeal ranged from 7 to 8 million, of which more than 5 million were civilian casualties of fighting, repression and disease. Uh, these figures do not include the estimated 5 million who died from the famine of 1921 to 23. So if we just add that up, we have 1 to 2 million emigres, 7 to 8 million uh, uh, military victims, so that's 9 to 10, or 8 to 10 million, and another 5 million, so 13 to 15 million people lost to Russia uh, in the five years of 1921 to 20, 22, 23. An utterly, utterly devastating event and also one of profound significance for the future of uh, Russia and, and I guess the course of totalitarianism uh, within Russia. Raleigh says that uh, war communism, the policies that uh, were adopted during uh, this, I guess, fight for survival of the Bolshevik state, uh, strengthened the authoritarian streak in Russian political culture by creating an economic order characterised by centralisation, state ownership, compulsion, the extraction of surpluses, forced allocation of labour, and a distribution system that rhetorically privileged toiling classes. It led to the consolidation of the one-party state and the repression of the same uh, vital civil culture, that extraordinary Russian Silver Age that, that uh, I described earlier. So many of those people were among the emigres, like the poet Maria Sabayetva or uh, the philosopher Nikolai, Nikolai Berdyaev, uh, and also uh, Vladimir Nabokov, the uh, great Russian novelist who made a later career uh, in America. Uh, and what's more, it uh, shattered, shattered social relationships. So profoundly, profoundly important event. Uh, and one uh, that uh, I think uh, is perhaps now only starting to be more fully uh, understood, perhaps in terms of its ramifications in in, I guess, you know, Western historiography. I 
if I were to, uh, I've been, I guess, looking around for a good account of the Russian Civil War, because apart from anything else, it's an astonishingly complicated event. Uh, like, you know, you have, like, if you just were to focus on the Ukraine part of the Russian Civil War of 19. Uh, 18 to 22 uh, or 23 then um, you know there's there's five different uh, actors who control Ukraine within one year of uh, the Russian Civil War Uh, there's the whites and there's the reds and then there's the monarchist nationalists and uh, and then there's also um various, um, I guess, uh, different ethnic and religious and nationalist groups that are um, revolting in parts of the uh, Russian Empire. And there is also the rather extensive and um, opportunistic intervention of uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, France, and indeed Japan uh, in the Russian Civil War. Uh, and if I were to suggest one uh, way to learn more about it, I'd suggest reading Mikhail Bulgakov's uh, novel, The White Guard, which describes the utter chaos of Kiev uh, during the Russian Civil War. Okay, let's move on to phase six which is another revolution uh, a perhaps forgotten revolution and that was the revolution uh, engineered by uh, joseph stalin in uh, the late 1920s and 1930s which was the uh, sudden rapid and remarkable industrialization of russia Sometimes talking talking about socialism in one country, turning away from uh, internationalism, but also uh, deploying all the powers of the state to uh, rapidly modernize and industrialize the Soviet economy, which had you know had certainly been industrializing, but industrialized through the 1930s uh, into World War II at an astonishing rate. And this revolution was accompanied by, I guess, a cultural revolution of sorts, uh, a closing down, perhaps, of the Russian mind around the uh, doctrines of socialist realism and uh, the party always being right. And, uh, of course, it also included the great uh, agricultural collectivization, uh, which uh, led to disastrous consequences, both for uh, people who were relocated uh, and dispossessed, I guess, uh, uh, across across the entire Soviet Union, 
and disastrous famines in uh, Ukraine, Kazakhstan and other parts of the Soviet Union. And in the 1930s, particularly in 1937 and 38, it was the high point of the years of the terror, the high point of the, I guess, criminalisation of dissent and persecution of the uh, political opponents, enemies or just suspect fought of uh, Stalin. Something like... Uh, in the years 37 and 38, I think something like 800,000 people were executed uh, for political crimes. Uh, I think that is the correct figure. And it was an astonishing, astonishing terror. And uh, there is, of course, a great poem by the poet Anna Akhmatova, um, called Requiem, and that was written over several uh, years and finalised perhaps in the late 1950s. Uh, oh, and I should say before I read this little section from that poem, the head of Stalin's secret police was a man called Yezov, uh, and he 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 presided over these extraordinary purges and and political trials well or or or, or executions uh, there were perhaps fewer trials and executions and so that era uh, is often known as the Yezovian uh, terror or Yezovshina in Russian and the start of requiem goes is uh, says this instead of a preface in the awful years of Yezovian horror I spent 17 months standing in line in front of various prisons in Leningrad one day someone recognized me then a woman with blue lips who was standing behind me and who of course had never heard my name came out of the stupor which typified all of us and whispered in my ear. Everyone there spoke only in whispers. Can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a fleeting smile passed over what had once been her face. Uh, It's a remarkable poem, I guess, of... Endurance and survival and tragedy and the uh, extraordinary emotional scarring that uh, occurred in uh, the Soviet Union uh, during those years of Stalinism. But it also brings to mind that in a way there were three eras of Stalin, there was, I guess, what there was the ascent to power through the uh, early 1920s, and then there was this, this, his, what he described as the great break of 1928 to 31, and in a way, uh, initiated at an extraordinary cost and perhaps an extraordinarily unnecessary cost a ex- extraordinarily successful modernization of the Soviet economy. But uh, he also 
experience to other periods and that takes us to our next phases. So the next phase is the third great war of uh, Russia in the 20th century and that is the Great Fatherland War, also known in the West, I guess, as World War Two. So again, there's enormous historiography on World War Two and Russia and World War Two. So I want to keep this relatively brief uh, for this kind of overview and just in terms of flipping perceptions. Uh, and of course, one of those perceptions is by using the uh, Russian word for Second World War, uh, which uh, is often translated as the Great Patriotic War, but uh, Mark B. Smith and other historians um, translate it more correctly as the Great Fatherland War uh, as a defensive war against the attack by uh, Nazi Germany in 1941. And I guess... Hitler and Stalin were both pretty nasty figures and there tends to be a, um, I guess, uh, moral equivalence drawn between them, which I think perhaps in terms of the uh, political killings that I just described is certainly true in the case of uh, Hitler and, uh, I mean, in terms of Stalin. But uh, it certainly... I don't think true to say that uh, Russia was an aggressor in World War II. Russia was a victim of Nazi Germany's aggression towards it. And um, it is part of the depth of resonance of World War II in the Russian cultural historical imagination or the Great Fatherland War. Uh, it's important to realise that, I guess, um, and not to buy into more recent arguments from some American historians that uh, Russia was always pursuing an aggressive policy sort of thing, but uh, uh, to also just realise the extraordinary nature of the scale of the uh, death, destruction and tragedy and, I guess, heroic resistance of Russians during World War II or the Great Fatherland War. Um, 27 million uh, Russians died, at least 27 million Russians died in uh, the combat in World War II. It was Russia that liberated uh, Berlin, liberated Auschwitz and many of the other you know, sites of the Holocaust. And that's not really the story one sees in Hollywood movies about World War II, uh, and that's understandable enough. But it's also essential, uh, if we're really to understand the 20th century, to understand the extent of the loss, the tragedy, the the long 900-day siege of Leningrad in which... Vladimir Putin's elder brother died in World War II. The fact that the German troops uh, at one point surrounded Moscow and that uh, ultimately Stalin 
despite all his horrible flaws, was able to mobilise the uh, Russian army and the Russian society to resist that near um, existential collapse of that state. You know, the, its enslavement, I guess, to the, the grandiose ambitions of Adolf Hitler. So that takes us to the end of the Great Fatherland War. Uh, again, uh, Mark B. Smith's book on the Russia anxiety discusses this in some depth, in particular around the idea that Russia is obsessed with, um, you know, uh, military matters and uh, defence matters and provides a much richer and complex, more complex understanding uh, of the Second World War. And similarly, uh, Vasily Grossman's um, uh, novels Stalingrad and Life and Fate provide insight into the ordinary person's experiences of those uh, remarkable, uh, that remarkable battle for survival, uh, uh, even if it was a battle for a deeply flawed regime, the survival of a deeply flawed regime. So then we get to phase eight, which is the fourth great war of uh, the Russian world, history of the Russian world in the 20th century. And that is the long cold war. Uh, as I said, after, after, um, at the end of World War Two, or the Great Fatherland War, Russia liberates Berlin and is there before the uh, Americans and and others, and to some degree the uh, Americans and others are engaging in a bit of a race to try to get there before the Russians. And Berlin becomes a divided city. That Germany, uh, as the defeated power, is, uh, I guess carved up between the four victorious powers and there's a complex set of agreements that hammered out in a series of conferences between Churchill, Stalin and Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt uh, that lead to the post-World War II arrangements and in addition in some of the former, I guess, German-dominated uh, Western borderland states like Poland, etc. There's both been uh, there's an enormous refugee crisis. There's you know the the consequences of the Holocaust and the and there's also something of political crisis in many of these states. Communist governments come to power partly through democratic means, partly through non-democratic means in much of Eastern Europe. And the famous Iron Curtain comes down uh, over Eastern Europe and Russia asserts a kind of, or the Soviet Union asserts a kind of defensive strategic dominance over all the states of between that the, I guess were the uh, avenues of German invasion into Russia, Poland, Hungary, the Baltic states, and so on. You, you know, and so on. And those countries endure some dark years under uh, effectively being controlled as sort of satellite governments of the Soviet Union. 
And late Stalinism comes into play. Stalin dies in 1953 and um, not really as portrayed in the film uh, The Death of Stalin, the recent film Death of Stalin, which is, uh, you know, a farce, I guess, but is amusing as a farce, but perhaps is not really a ballad or accurate representation of history. Uh, Khrushchev comes to power and there is a kind of a thaw, what's described as a thaw, uh, both in uh, Russian, uh, there's de-Stalinization that happens. The extremity, the extremes of the gulag and political persecutions are condemned, and uh, Stalin uh, criticised for the conduct of the, you know, the mass terror of the uh, 1930s and uh, economic life and cultural life um, lightens up a bit. Uh, And indeed, perhaps one of the ways to flip one's understanding of uh, the Russian world in the 50s, 60s and 70s is in many ways these are the years of greatest success of the Soviet Union. I mean... The Soviet Union, which came into being in 1917, 1918, or arguably 1922, strictly speaking, because there was a sort of a kind of a sort of treaty process that went that happened, you know, endured the horrors of the Civil War in the 1920s, whatever it was, losing 10, 12 million people, the horrors of the 1930s uh, with the the the, the the famine and the uh, the the terror and the the repression and the forced deportation, etc., etc., uh, and then the horrors of the nineteen forties, when <laughs> you know twenty seven million plus people died uh, and their country was occupied all the way to both its capitals, both. St. Petersburg or Leningrad and Moscow uh, by a a racist regime that wanted to, you know, enslave the subhuman Slavic race um, and kill every Jew it could find. uh, Appalling, appalling regime. So after all those three horrible, horrible tragic decades, Russian society or the Russian world society actually starts to revive in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s. It actually starts to catch up economically with uh, um, America. Uh, Nowhere near the affluence, etc. of America, but very few countries in the world had the affluence of America in 1950. It starts to uh, see a re- revival of life expectancy and the um, the long-held ambitions of a 
uh, of a fair, wealthy estate actually start to get implemented in the Soviet Union in the 50s, 60s and 70s, in, as well as, you know, uh, um, making available education and, and um, high-quality culture to many people. Even though there is still some level of dissent, there's also mass participation in uh, many cultural uh, events and many people uh, do not experience it it is not Russia in the 1930s it's Russia a, a different kind of Russia in these years still with its levels of intolerance and levels of repression and levels of stagnation as Gorbachev said but also one with uh, a lot of successes and loyalties and complex attachments to both uh, the ideology of, you know, socialism uh, that was um, uh, that was begun in 1917 as well as uh, some of the, I guess, the modernist concepts of the Soviet Union as well in 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 uh, cultural life. So again, uh, fascinating uh, and important to flip that around from just, uh, I guess, purely an image of Solzhenitsyn and the Gulag archipelago. It is a more complex picture indeed. And this is conveyed uh, extremely well in the work by Sheila Fitzpatrick, The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. Uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick is a Melbourne, uh, well, an Australian historian, a Melbourne historian, uh, and is one of the most um, esteemed historians of the Soviet Union around the world. Uh, I'm pretty sure she, she was the daughter of the famous Australian historian Brian Fitzpatrick who wrote in the 40s and 50s and 60s and and was, I think, a member of the Communist Party. But yes, her works are extraordinary and worth reading. And if you want to get a flipped insight into the political and the social and the cultural experience of the history of the Soviet Union... Uh, you can't really do better than read The Shortest History of the Soviet Union by the distinguished Sheila Fitzpatrick. Okay, so then that just takes us into our final phase, which is the fifth revolution of Russia's 20th century, and that is the 1990s. And uh, I won't talk too much about this because I covered it a fair bit, I guess, in talking about uh, the experience of Mikhail Gorbachev, but uh, the 1990s was, in a way, a period of revolution in uh, Russia. There was a coup in August 1991, and then, arguably, there was a, a second coup in the revolt of the uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russian uh, republics of the Soviet Union that led to the disintegration of the Soviet Union 
and associated with that was a form of extreme market ideology that led to to the uh, you know the 500 day plan to transform that complex heritage of the last 90 years that I just described to you with its welfare state and its strong military and its um, proud if if conflicted culture uh, turn it into a free market consumerist free-for-all and of course uh, as I think I conveyed it was a terrible terrible uh, social catastrophe in many ways and one that still has many uh, resonances for Russians so that's the history of Russia in the 20th century five revolutions the 1905 Revolution, political revolution, and associated cultural revolutions. The nine, February 1917 Lib, Liberal Democratic Revolution, I guess. The October 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. The 1928 to 1930 plus uh, Stalinist economic and cultural revolution. The Great Break, as he described it. And finally, the 1990s neoliberal American revolution in Russia. Uh, and then the four great wars, World War I, the Civil War of 1918-22, the Great Fatherland War of 1941-45, the Long Cold War from, let's say, 1948 to uh, 1989 plus maybe another 30 years and those uh, those behind those enormous and deeply tragic events there has been the most extraordinary uh, you know range of cultural historical political all forms of uh, artistic and an ordinary person's emotional experience of those events as well. And what a remarkable, astonishing story it is, and what a more interesting story it is than the 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 story of benighted Russia suffering under totalitarian dictators waiting to be freed by the Anglo-Americans. So it's an astonishing history of Russia in the 20th century and I hope uh, some of the re listeners of the Burning Archive uh, take the uh, opportunity to read some of the uh, recommended material I've mentioned there and, and come to a deeper appreciation of the Russian world in the American century of the 20th century. Okay, that's it for me uh, this week. I'll be back soon with the next in my series of episodes on Russian history and we're going to look at the 19th century next, perhaps through the prism 
of Russia's remarkable liberation of Europe from Napoleon in 1812 to 18, uh, 14 or so. Uh, do share and subscribe the to the podcast uh, and also let me also say that on i think it's october the 6th i'm going to do a special episode of the podcast uh to a sort of a live stream even of the podcast related to the nobel prize for literature i think that's going to become an annual tradition of the burning archive podcast who knows maybe they'll even honor and historian this time anyhow uh do look out for that and like and subscribe and um i'll be with you soon and until then remember as so many russians must have felt so deeply through the 20th century what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee bye now